The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Well, good morning, chapel family. How are you guys this morning? Everyone done with their Christmas shopping? No? Well, if you're wondering, I'll make my Amazon wish list public, and then you guys can all go there and finish it up. Okay, we'll be good to go. I know it's a stressful time of year for some of you. It is a hard time of year for some of you, and some of you are the literal embodiment of Buddy the Elf. Um, I'm married to one of those. I mean, she doesn't look like Will Ferrell, but she has his Christmas spirit. So as we press into Christmas, we are continuing on in our series called Restored, looking for Jesus in each of the books of the Bible. Today we find ourselves in Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah. If you're using a fake Bible, you can go ahead and just push the button until you find your way there. If you need a Bible, we have a few left in the back. We need to order some more, uh, and we will make those available to you. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you are new, I forgot to say welcome. My name is Ryan, and I am your pastor. We are going to pray and then jump into this. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather with your people, to gather here as a church family, to love one another, to worship you, to learn and grow from your word. I pray today that you would open our eyes to see your truths, open our ears to hear your voice. God, may we learn today how to face opposition in our life. May we learn today how to equip ourselves or be equipped to face the difficult seasons that all of us will inevitably go through. I thank you that you carry us along in hard times, and I pray now that you would do so with the reading of your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture will not be up on the screen today. That is my bad. I totally spaced on putting it up there, and then I just felt like singing instead of going back there and doing it um, earlier. But nonetheless, we will be reading from Nehemiah chapter 4. So Nehemiah is going to rebuild the wall. Remember, this is a companion book with Ezra. Nehemiah has a different take than Ezra. When Ezra has opposition, Ezra, the book that we did last week, Ezra is a character who, when he faced opposition, he sat down, cried, and pulled his hair out. Nehemiah is more the kind that will sit you down and pull your hair out. But these books go together like a pair, and now we're going to see what Nehemiah does when he faces opposition. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up in it, he will break break down their stone wall. Here Oh, our God, for we are displeased. These are the enemies of the Jewish people speaking right now. They're praying to God, saying, Here, O God, we are displeased. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. May God bless the reading of his word. So we have a few things to look at here. First, has anyone here faced opposition ever in their life? Okay, now second, there's this whole concept of, you know, winning the war and losing some battles. So um, just for the sake of a, a betting person here, any, anybody like to gamble? That's a trick question in church. You're not supposed to answer that. So football's coming down to, to the end, right? And the Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl this year, right? We all agree on this? Okay, 
the Buccaneers fans, you guys can keep on trying your best to delude yourselves into thinking that you could defeat my beloved Steelers. Now, I like the Bucs. They've become my second favorite team. Second favorite team. But, but let, let's do this. If you knew who was going to win the Super Bowl today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and you happen to have some money, would you be tempted to bet on the winning team, right? It, it doesn't matter how much you like another team. It doesn't matter what your affinity for another team was because we know the Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl, you guys. So even if you're diehard Bucks fans, if you know, like I know, that the Steelers are going to win, where are you, you going to place your money? It's a losing bet. It's a losing bet. Now, I, I don't know who's going to win, but if I could Marty McFly myself and discover who it was, obviously we would all bet on the winning team. Nobody bets on the losing team. Now, there's something that happens in Christianity where we tend to think that the war is up to us to win. We tend to believe that it's going to be our behavior, our cultural savvy, our intellectual capacities in order to win a war, and that is and could not be farther from the truth. The war is already won. When we face opposition, we are riding on the coattails of the victory that Jesus secured on the cross. So we've got to start there. And with this story right now, what's going on is the Jewish people were in captivity. If you don't know the story, after the kings, after Saul and David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split up to a northern and a southern tribe. And they existed for a period of time, but they disobeyed God. So the Babylonians came in, Xerxes and Darius. And these kings took the Jewish people and they spread them all over the empire. And after a season... They finally said, okay, you can go back and rebuild your temple. The temple that we literally tore to the ground, stone by stone. We demolished your place of worship. We demolished the hub of your cultural center. We demolished it all. But God worked in the hearts of one of those kings, and the Jewish people were allowed to go back. And now they were rebuilding their temple. And Ezra, last week, we saw went in, and he was a different personality. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. So if you're reading your Bible, these two books go hand in hand. They are part one and part two. And in some of the old Jewish scrolls, they were just one, uh, one unit together, one scroll. You could read through the accounts. Ezra was very, very different. Ezra wept over the sin of the people. Ezra fell down, and it says he pulled out his own hair in despair. Nehemiah is not that kind of guy. When Nehemiah faced opposition... He said, everybody strap up swords, and he strategically placed people to defend the wall that they were building. Now, Nehemiah, in this story, I mean, he's, he's my favorite, right? So we all have characters that we gel with a little bit more in life and in the Bible. We all have those shows that we love, and we think, yeah, I'm kind of like this guy, I'm kind of like that guy. In the Bible, it's no different. You know, I, I know a lot of people think that they're this person or that person. I, I'm always the, the messed up person, the aggressor in the Bible. So whenever you read in the Bible and there's somebody that resonates with you, ask yourself, why do I like them so much? Because some of you are Ezra's, and we need Ezra's. We need people who care so deeply that when life goes bad, your heart breaks, and you want to serve and help and give as much as you possibly can. I, I, my, my wife is one of those people. Man, she will just give and give and give. That's, that's not my natural go-to move. If, if something is broken, I want to fight. Some of you know fighters, or you're married to a fighter right? Any challenge that could be laid before them, they want to overcome it. It's like they have an addiction to conquering, and that can be very, very good or very, very bad if you direct your energies well. Nehemiah was ready to conquer strategically, but he wanted to make sure that the people knew what was going on. So Sanballat and Tobiah are coming in, and they're saying, we are going to stop this rebuild process. We don't like what the Jewish people are doing, and they, they start with just 
attacking them verbally. The verbal, physical attack is solid as any second grade maneuver can be, right? Do you remember that? Do you remember the whole sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? And words, they hurt, right? Like whoever made that up was a mother that lied to her kids. Because words hurt. And they start with the word attack. They start with saying, oh, you feeble Jews, you feeble, weak people. And and the word attacks are often where it starts with us. That's how you can know when something is about to go down, when the words start going on. When all of a sudden there's first talking behind your back and then maybe talking to your face or in a relationship. You, You rarely go from zero to 60 on the argument scale. It usually starts with the word jabs. We all know the word jabs, right? But your mother would do this. But your father, I couldn't believe this. Oh, the dishes are still dirty, huh? I mean, I don't say these, but I've heard that married does this to you. <laughs> Some person's like, I've been married. I know what he means. So first, it's the word attack. But here, here's what I want us to do, and we need to see this. The enemies of God's people pray a very, very bad prayer. Their goal is to prevent the Jewish people from finishing their place of sacrifice and worship. And and just like today, the enemies that face you and I are not going to be enemies that are just going to come in and try to crush and destroy us. Enemies are always going to want to dismantle your spirituality from the inside out. It's not the external enemies that we have to worry about. It's the internal ones. Do you want to know how hard it is in suburbia, USA, to have children and go to a church gathering on a regular basis? For some reason, every sporting event, every birthday party, everything gets scheduled at Sunday morning. Sunday morning. It is crazy. And and I'm with you guys in the boat. But unfortunately for my kids, this is the one day that I actually have to be here. So we just say no to a lot of things. But it is difficult. And, And I'm not saying that it's bad to do those things, but I am saying that there is something that's changed that's going to prevent us from building our lives around God. There is something that's got to change in our hearts that, that has to make it a new priority. And until it becomes our priority, things will not change. They will tend to go on as they have in your life. And many people ask me, how do I grow spiritually? How do I get closer to God? And I go back all the way to the basics. First, I say, you set aside a day for him. And it doesn't have to be Sunday, by the way. It does not have to be Sunday. I never get Sundays off, you guys. You should feel sorry for me. I have to work every thinking Sunday. But I take that day where I unplug, and I, I try to avoid as best I can emails, and I pray that God will avoid emergencies in your lives only on that day. The other six days, all him. <laughs> Hard week. But, but if we don't get to rebuild our lives around the core of what God wants us to rebuild around, because they, they were being prevented from building the sacrificial system. They were being prevented from building the walls, and these enemies then turned to prayer. Now, here's something to note. This prayer by the enemies of God's people is a bad prayer. The prayer says right there in, in verse uh, this part especially, verse 5, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. This is what the enemies of God's people are praying for God's people. And I just have to tell you, if you are a follower of Jesus in here today, we have some bad prayers. Election season was full of bad prayers. 
If you've ever wanted God to not forgive somebody, that is wrong. And I don't know why I have to say this out loud, but I feel like I do because I have a Facebook page. And some of you said, well, I I would never say it out loud, so I'm going to take it one level deeper. If you, in your heart of hearts, have wanted a human to suffer because they have a different view of government from you, that is wrong. Okay, now now that I'm going to just jump off that soapbox and come back over to this one. Christians, stop praying bad prayers. If your prayer is to tear people down, it is not a good prayer. Oftentimes when I tell people, they say, I'm struggling getting along with this coworker or this person or my spouse, I say, do you pray for them every day? Do you sit down in a quiet space and pray for them every day? And, and I, I learned to rephrase that because I, I often saw the person say, well, yes, I pray for them every day. And then I had a little ding, 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 ask them what they pray every day. Because there are prayers in the Old Testament where God says, or where the, the authors of the Psalms say, God, smite my enemies, crush them into the ground and destroy their bones. So sometimes I can see it in their eyes when I say, how do you pray for your spouse? Well, I, I pray this psalm, the one that says crush their bones into dust. Okay, well, let, let me rephrase. I, I want you to pray to build them up. And this is not what the enemies are doing here. They're praying to tear down. They're praying directly against what Psalm 51 says, which was already written at this time. He's saying, do not blot out their sins. God already said in, in the psalms, like, you, I'm coming to blot out your sins. So they're trying to reverse scripture. And we do that all the time, church family. We do that all the time the time. We take a verse that we really, really love, and we will tweak it and change it so that it means exactly what we want it to mean. If you read the Bible on a regular basis, and you find that the Bible is never disagreeing with you, then you're actually not, you're actually not letting the Bible be read properly. You're actually not reading the Bible or letting the Bible read you. You need to realize that if this is a true book from God to us, it will disagree with you at times unless you are the omnipotent creator of the universe. If you think you're the omnipotent creator of the universe, grab a business card. We'll do counseling later. If the Bible is always agreeing with you and affirming you, you might be reading into it things that aren't actually there. The Bible will be difficult at times, and it may say things that you don't like initially. And you have to ask yourself if you believe God at his word or not. So the opposition Christians, stop praying bad prayers. Don't go against God's word. I love um, those situations in my life as a pastor where people tell me what God is telling them to do. And, and I believe that God can speak to us through his word and through the counsel of others, through his Holy Spirit. But I don't believe that God will speak against what he's already said. So when somebody comes up to me, and this has happened uh, numerous times, people have come up to me and said, well, um, God is telling me to, to get divorced. And I usually say, no, he's not telling you. Well, how do you know what God's telling me? Are you in my head? No, but I already know what he said in his book. So I, don't, I know that he's not going to go against himself. Or, or God is telling me to, to not do this or to not give or to not serve or to not whatever. We always want to make God our puppet. And that begins to look really silly when we're treating the creator of the universe like a sock puppet that says everything that we want to say and agrees with everything we want to do. Because at that point, who's become the master? We have. And we think we know better. And some of you may still think you know better, and all, I think all of us function in that way often, which we're going to get to in a bit. Okay, Christians, don't, pay, don't pray bad prayers. Here we go. So here's what happens next. So verse 6, we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. 
I love it when people work hard. I love a good, hard day's labor. And when you want to work, isn't it amazing how much you can accomplish? When you actually want to do said thing. Now, how does it go when you don't want to work? How are, how are your Friday afternoons at 2.30? Or, or how about those of you who, who own your own businesses or have employees? How do your employees do at 3.30 on Friday? What does the productivity rate look like then? Are they just hitting it, just hammering out that work, getting in those reports? Or are they constantly clicking on whatever thing they can do to get by with their time? I mean, I, I, lo- I love seeing all the pictures people post because it seems like in our culture, everyone hates Monday and loves Friday. It's, that's just the way it seems. I, I love Monday. I love it because I get to start building again for the next week. Friday, I love because it's my day off. So I love the Oreo sandwich part of my week. Wednesdays, Thursdays, give or take. But when you love what you do, man, you will work hard at it. And some of you, I, I know this because I talk to you, you hate your job. You wake up every day with this grim reaper looking scowl. There is no amount of coffee pots in the world that could motivate you toward joy. And I know this is terrifying, but I just, I, I'm not saying that God always will pave a way for everyone to do everything that they love, but if you absolutely despise your job, I just want you to do the basic math and look at how many hours a week you spend doing, spend at your job, and realize that that's how many hours you are unhappy And when you're unhappy, guess what you're also going to be? The best Christian witness ever. Right? Because everybody loves that employee who's angry at the earth. They put down papers with force. Their emails don't have a sincerely or a thanks. It's just like initial, initial. (laughs) If you want to make a change in your life, find something that you love to do. The Jewish people at this point in the story had a mind to work, and it said they built the wall up to half its height. Now, this wall was a big wall in some places, so half its height is not a small endeavor. They did not have uh, the, the John Deere equipment, but they got it done. They got it to half its height, but not the full height. They were setting up what they could to get a basic defense against people that they thought were going to come attack. And let's keep reading how the story goes down. Verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah And the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So there were still some holes in the wall. And they hear that the enemies are coming. So Nehemiah doesn't do what Ezra does. Nehemiah doesn't fall down, pull out his hair, and cry. Nehemiah says, we're going to get guys with swords. You guys go to this wall. You guys go to this wall. You guys get this shift. You guys get this shift. And he set up the defense. Now, many, many of us are good at setting up defenses in certain areas of our lives, but not in others. For example, if if you want to have a, a happy marriage, You've got to set up actual defenses against things that will creep in to destroy. The Bible calls them foxes in the Song of Songs and in Proverbs. Foxes will try to enter into your relationship. And if you don't have defenses, your marriage will begin to deteriorate. If you don't have defenses against things that are trying to break into your vocation, your vocation will begin to deteriorate and begin to detract from God's work in that place of business. 
if you don't have defenses against your children, we call these, in my generation, parental controls, then the way that your children are raised will be under attack. And it is hard. It is hard work. Nobody said that creating defenses, it was easy. If you want to grow your spirituality, you have to have some area, you have to shore up areas of weakness. You have to shore up areas where you know sin can creep in. It, it's, it's always the, you know, for me, it's, it's not funny, but I laugh every time when people come to me with their sin, and then I ask them how, like, I back up. So they say, oh, man, this happened. I got so drunk. I went and did this. This was a bad choice. I did this sexual sin. So I say, okay, let's just stop right there. Let's back up and see what got you there. How did you end up having this affair? What happened first? Well, first, um, it was just the flirtatiousness at work. Okay, so there, there's a red flag. You didn't set up a defense to know that. What's the next defense? Well, they, they wanted to go have drinks afterwards. A few of me and my coworkers wanted to go have drinks. So we had drinks. Okay, so what happened at drinks? Well, everyone left but my, my person who was still there who was flirting with me. Okay, and then how many drinks did you have? Oh, we were just doing shots. Oh, and then you wonder how you fell into the affair? So there's somebody that you're flirting with that you went and got drinks with. Everyone else left, and you thought, brilliant idea. Let's stay and have more drinks because tequila makes everything better. Said no one ever except for college students. Okay. And then the affair happens. Or, or oftentimes it's, it's with our kids wondering how, how, do you, how did you get to become this? You know, teenagers don't just squirt into teenage rebellion instantly. And I know that there is a sense where they just kind of pop out like a daisy and their independence tries to take hold. But, but it's not like they just have childhood amnesia. They still know what was taught to them unless nothing was taught to them. If you don't set up defenses, enemies will make their way through the breach. But this is, this is only the start of this. And I, I love Nehemiah's um, chutzpah. Verse 10, in Judah, so here's now the Jewish people, so we're rebuilding the wall, here's what they say. So they hear the enemies are coming, they get assigned to the breach, they're filling the gaps, they're going to defend the wall. But in Judah, people begin to say, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. We can't rebuild it. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So now the Jewish people are getting discouraged because they're lifting rocks, trying to put the wall back together. They have some people guarding it. And now they're looking around saying, there is just too much rubble. It's too much. We can't do it. Some of your lives right now are probably too much rubble. Some of your lives right now, you look at a situation and you think, this is impossible. There is no way this can be repaired. There is no way that I can make this work out on my job. There's no way that I can make this financially. There's no way that I can overcome this health issue. There's no way that my marriage can be restored. There's no way, no way, no way, no way. There's too much rubble, and I am tired. And, and I know, I know that many of you are in these places. And, and here's what I want to say first. By yourself, what this verse says, by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. By yourself you will not be able to rebuild the rubble of your life. By yourself, in the pragmatic human sense, if your life is a train wreck right now, and you think that you can put it back together by yourself, take two steps backward and ask yourself, looking at the situation, how did my life get into this train wreck? 
and chances are likely you were involved with the steering wheel. So it's not going to be you that gets yourself out of the mess. It's not going to be your abilities, your strength, your brawn that will be able to repair the rubble of your life. We need each other. We need each other. Right now there are a a dozen teachers in the back there teaching the kids. If they didn't sit back there to teach the children and be in the nursery, none of us would hear anything. I wouldn't hear anything. And I have a microphone. I would make my sermons five minutes long, which would make some of you happy. But we would not get much productivity done. If you want to see absolute crazy, you should come to our house after school one day when Jackson's not grounded, when all the neighborhood kids come over. They're screaming and yelling, and then people are bleeding. And my office window faces the area of that massacre that I affectionately call the Coliseum de Tirona. Because they jump off the thing. My daughter's only three. A fifth grader throws her off the trampoline. I go kill him and his parents. I mean, it's just a bad place. I don't kill people, by the way. But, but all of a sudden, that noise just starts rising. And, there's n- and I go out there, and Amy's like, I can't do anything out there. It's just these kids. They're a nightmare. So we go out together. And I try to let Amy be the good cop when she's home. But we need, we need to be a team with our kids. So I get the dad voice going. It's sort of like my Batman Bane thing. Get in the house. The kids come running in fear. I send the neighborhood kids home. Go home to your parents. They all run in fear. And then the kids come in, and we sit down, and Amy and I work together. And sometimes it's not enough, though. Sometimes I need other parents to help me out or other neighbors. It takes a team. I need my neighbor Chris to tell me, um, Ryan, so Silas was climbing the fence and hanging on the bamboo and swinging it down and jumping. Oh, thanks for letting me know. Or, or on the other side of my house where we have a bush that's a privacy bush that my kids apparently don't understand what privacy means. So they go and they break every internal branch. So now I can see my neighbor. Hey, neighbor, see my privacy bush? My kids did that. But they, the neighbor told me, hey, your kids are doing this. They're playing over that massively speed whipping fan blade of your AC. Should they do that? No. I've told them not to. But, but I need help. And, and, and not only that, beyond that, we need help for one another. Because we are not going to be able to see and deal with the sins in our lives without a community of people around us. It is so easy to not see our own sins. The, the most blind thing that we have in our life is usually our sins. Haven't you noticed that, that everyone else is a wretch except for you? That when you sing Amazing Grace, you're like, yes, Amazing Grace for a wretch like them. Because your sins are never as bad. But the reality is they are, you just don't see them. Because we tend to minimize the depravity and gravity of our sins and we maximize others. Which is why your spouse's sins are worse than yours. I'm just telling you the truth. This is how you feel, whether you admit it or not. The deficiencies in your spouse spiritually, you believe, are far worse than your deficiencies. At least I do. Sorry. I will be less holy than you today. You are more holy than me. I believe that my wife's sins are worse than mine. I confess. Will you forgive me? See, she even forgives me. If she asked me, I'd be like, nope. That's my sin. No, I'd forgive her. 
We need a team to build the rubble. You need people around you. If you don't have people around you, get involved. If you're not in a small group, if that's not your thing, I know small groups are crazy. I didn't grow up in a church. My first time in a small group, terrifying. People knew where books of the Bible were. I, don't, I didn't know any of that. I just jumped in. If you don't have one, get involved in one. Look at the information in the back. Meet with the leaders. Come talk to me. I'll help plug you in. You can come on Mondays. We have ones on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, uh, Saturday mornings for the men at Foundation Coffee because I'm an addict. Get in a community. Get people around you to help rebuild the rubble where you can be honest. Okay, we're going to keep on going. Man, rebuilding, it's coming. The defense is going up. The enemies are coming in, and he gives the speech. I love this speech, verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials, this is Nehemiah's speech, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is like Mel Gibson vintage Braveheart stuff. Just look at that. I could even picture him saying it in Hebrew. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. The enemies are coming in. Will you remember to fight because the Lord is on your side. Now here's where we have to pause. Too many Christians fight as if we are the Lord. We are not the Lord. If you think you have deity in your natural inborn state, you need to be part of a community where they can tell you you do not. If you feel like you know all the answers, if you feel like you are always smarter, always more successful, always more emotionally in tune, if you are always right and you think, I am so right, it's amazing that no one else in this world is as right as me. The blinders on the side of your face are stretching for miles. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Every few years of my life, I look back and I think uh, about how much of an idiot I was a few years ago in certain areas. And And it happens every two, three, four, five years. It happens. I look back and I think, what was I thinking? And, and I, I don't know if you guys are there or not, but that, that's, that's a real struggle. Because then I have to say, how much of an idiot am I today? What will 40-year-old Ryan think today of mid-30s Ryan? And the reality is, is that ideally, hopefully, I'm trying to surround myself with wise people. I just look around for people with gray beards, people that ride motorcycles. I'm like, I want to be like them. So I just put them around me. I say, give me your good stuff. I want to hang out with people who are around me, but not just those who are successful, but those who depend on the Lord, because there's a big difference. There's a big difference between someone who can be successful in the world's eyes and someone who is desperate for God. And I was talking about this with someone recently with the men on Saturday morning. I said, in, in the church, we idolize the strong. We, we want to be like the strong. When, whenever I've been at a church, we do like a par- parental discussion. Like, we're going to have, we're going to teach parenting and stuff. Who do we get? We get like the best families, right? We get the, the people, they're like the, the Crest White Strips commercial poster family. And their kids are just super obedient. And somehow the wife makes like homemade blueberry scones and muffins every morning. The kids don't even like playing on their iPads. And then I sit there and I'm like, this is not my world. 
My world is kids. How do I get my kids to stop throwing the iPad? How do I get children to stop biting each other? I'm on the baseline. But you know what I found in life? That, that while I can learn some things from the strong, the strong people tend to have depended on themselves, and that's okay, but I'm not wired that way. I like meeting with people and learning from people who are train wrecks like me. I love going to things where I can hear the reality of their lives without the veneer of Pleasantville on top of it. I want somebody to come up and say, man, I, I blew it as a parent. My kids are far from God right now, but here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. Because I'll bet you that person has learned a lot more. You know, adversity always teaches us faith. Nobody wants adversity, right? Nobody wants to go through hard times. It's, it's just like in nature. Go to the top of a mountain, there's not much growing. Where is it all growing? Down in the valley. Just like in life. In the valleys of our lives, things will grow, but we don't like it. Because we can't see, and there's thorn bushes and swamps. So we get to the mountain, and we love it. And the view is amazing, and it's beautiful. And you can look back at the valleys of your life and say, wow, I'm glad that I grew because now I get to have this vantage point and perspective. But it stunk being down there. And then what happens again? You go down. Uh, we, I asked you guys to pray last week for, for Charles. And uh, if, if you're friends with him on Facebook, you've seen some of his videos. Because he was, he's got cancer in his stomach, one of our worship leaders. And he was going to have surgery. Two days before the surgery, the hospital called and said, no, we need $70,000 up front before we perform the surgery. So they canceled the surgery. And then there was no way they were going to get that money. But then all of a sudden, the insurance came back later in the week, and they got the money, and they're rescheduling the But, man, if you saw Facebook, you s I saw difficulties. Man, it, it, it was a valley. All of his close friends were in a valley, people crying alongside him and his family. And then all of a sudden, it shot up to a Mount Everest amount of joy. And if you've never hung out with Charles, just invite him out for Thai food. He loves it. Get the real spicy stuff for him secretly. And, um, and just listen to him. His contagiousness for life is, is exhilarating. And in the valleys, uh, I had not seen him in those types of valleys, but when he got catapulted to the mountain, oh, he was giggling. He could barely talk. And if you've talked to him, he's got that African accent. You know, I, see, I can barely understand what he's saying half the time anyway. Uh, and he's so happy. He's laughing. Yeah, let's get tired. I'm like, whatever, man. Yeah, I should play guitar. I don't know. And, uh, but, but at the top of that mountain, exhilarated. And he, he learned more about faith in four days than many of us will learn in four years. Now, I don't wish that any of us would have the cancer that he has and have to endure what he's endured. But I hope that one day all of us will see the faith exponentially grow in our lives. I don't wish upon anybody because I've been at too many deathbeds. I've done too many funerals. I've done funerals for students and children. I, I don't wish that upon anybody. But man, when God shakes you up, you have an opportunity to grow if you realize what he's doing. So, is God going to be with you, and is he your defender today? There's a, a Bible study each week. If you don't know this, you write a Bible study based on the sermon, and it usually adds on to the sermon. This week's Bible study goes through Ephesians chapter 6, because one of the common misconceptions is that we fight in our own strength. And I need you to know that God already won the war when Jesus died on the cross. And when God gives us the armor of God, as it's called, and if you want to study this, you can download it for free. It's on the website. Just look on Sermon Study for, for um, whichever day, December 11th, and you can download the PDF, print it out, scribble it, work through it with your husband or wife or, or by yourself. This, this passage really 
reminds us, even though we don't think it does, that it is all about God, and it's all because of God that we can find hope. It says in the beginning, be strong in the Lord, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and in the strength of his might. Who are we to be strong in? The Lord. The strength of whose might? His might, not our might. Put on the whole armor of who? God. Is it my armor? Is it your armor? Is it your spouse's armor? Is it the church's armor? Is, is God's armor. Put on that armor. Put on the belt of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth about Jesus holds everything together. Nobody wants to go into a fight with their drawers down. Let's be honest, right? One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is when these guys are casting out demons, and they're saying, I cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. I cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the demons gang up on him and said, we know Jesus, and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? And the demon-possessed people beat up these guys, and they all left the house naked. Because in high school, um, I got in some fights, and there was always a debate as to who won the fight, right? Like, oh, no, that guy, when you got in that good shot, my theory is if you start a fight with pants and leave naked, you lost. That's my theory. Okay, this is baseline theory. Like, if you go in with pants, you go out, and you've got your Valentine's boxers on, somehow you lost that fight. I don't know how it went down, but I wish it would be on, on YouTube, okay? Um, not, not if it was me, okay? The belt of truth holds everything together. In the Roman armor, it held up your drawers, and there was actually a piece of armor that, that was here for the men that guarded your future offspring. The belt held that up. The belt is truth. The belt is Jesus. It's not how true you can be. It's how true he is. And then you have the breastplate of righteousness. Some Christians think that the breastplate of righteousness is how good I can be. I'm going to put my righteousness on. Don't put your righteousness on. Your righteousness would be like the armor of a dime covering a piece of a useless rib. So when they started hacking you with a sword, all you'd have if you had your righteousness is a dime taped with scotch tape to one rib that you don't even need anyway. Your righteousness is not good. We need God's righteousness. We need God's righteousness in Jesus, which covers all. The armor, the breastplate covered all of your vital organs. And it's not your righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. It's not your truth, it's Jesus who is the truth. The helmet of salvation, which covers your head. And for those of you who play first-person shooters, headshots are kill shots. In, in life, it's no different. Is the helmet of salvation. Guess what the enemy is going to do when he wants to attack you? One of the first things he's going to do is get you to doubt your salvation. He's going to say, are you really saved in the middle of the night after a big blow-up fight or after a terrible day at work where you, you curse someone out? You're going to go, nah, man, I'm a terrible Christian. Am I even a Christian? I don't know. The good news is, is that your Christian faith does not depend on how good you can behave. It is good to behave good, but your faith does not depend on it. Because if that were the case, no one would be a Christian in this room. No one. There's not one person's righteousness that can measure up to God's standard, which is perfection. No one. I know this for sure. Because my wife is an amazing human being. But I also know that she bought me a new shirt. And she told me, and new pants. I got new pants today. And, and she told me to put my glasses on. And I know exactly what that means. She thinks I'm sexy. So, so that, that's what this means. So while you guys are hearing from God, I am irresistible to that woman over there. And I'm okay with this. But now, all joking aside, we, we sin more than we think. And, it, and by the way, in marriage, it's not a sin. That's actually an act of worship. So if you're married, you are commanded by God to have sex often and frequently and only stop having sex for a time of prayer and fasting. Okay, and that's what lots of people do. The husband's all of a sudden, I'm taking notes for the first time in my life. 
I've never taken notes in church, but I'm, it's my life first, Pastor. Where is it? I'll show you later. First Corinthians 7. <coughs> okay, so we, we sin more than we think. We sin on the way in. We sin in the car. We sin in here. We sin. We judge people looking around. Oh, look at that person sitting there, raising their arm. They're faking it. They're crying. They're doing this. Blah, blah, blah. We sin, 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 sin. It is not our righteousness. It is not our truth. It is not our helmet of salvation. But when the enemy attacks, he's going to try to attack the salvation. Doubt yourself. Doubt your faith. Doubt this. And then he's going to attack your goodness. You're not good enough. You're, you can't stand a chance. You're right. I can't. Jesus can, though. And he's my armor. I'm not my armor. He's my armor. I didn't make it. He made it. You're wrong about this, you're wrong about that. Probably I'm wrong about a lot of things. Every three or four years, I look back and that guy was an idiot. Good thing I have Jesus' truth, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' salvation, and the shield of faith, which was a shield that was one of those 300-looking things. Floor to sea, you could hide behind it. Faith that, that we get to exercise, the Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. And this faith is not ours, our own doing, but is a gift of God. Even the faith we have to believe in God is a gift of God. All of this armor to fight our battles is all from God, for God, empowered by God, infused with God. And we just stand there going like, we don't have to be strong. We don't have to be strong. And I'll close with this because this like really lit my fuse this week. I read a pastor who said, we don't need weak preachers with weak messages, preaching weak messages to weak congregations about reaching a dying world. And I read that, and if I, in my youth I would have loved it, because in my youth I was like a religious moralist. Yeah, we don't need weak this, weak this. We need to be strong, because in my youth I thought that I was going to change the world. I wake up, we're going to change the world. We're going to just kick a debt in eternity. If Satan comes in here, he's getting a Spartacus kick to the chest. And I thought it was just me. I'm going to be funny or do this, preach that. And then all of a sudden, as I become a real human being, and I read the Bible, I realize, wait a second. This pastor, who I adore, who said this, I love this guy, 95% of what he says. But he wrote this, and I thought, this is total garbage. We don't need weak pastors. What kind of pastors are there? Or is, there is there another kind that I'm unaware of? Are there pastors who are morally strong? Are there pastors who have it all together? I mean, sorry, if you grew up in church, I need to clarify. Yes, your pastors appeared to be that way. Because in seminary, they teach us how to fake it till we make it. I'm not, just, that's how it goes. The whole image of super pastor, I've been working the, the second half of my ministry career. I've been trying to kick that guy off of the pulpit throne forever. I can't stand the image of super pastor. It, it gets under my skin. Because we are all weak people saved by a good God. And presumably, what, what I think my, my friend said when he wrote that was, when he said we don't need weak messages, he, he wanted more of the do harder, be, be better, try harder messages. Those are good. But the longer you live, the more you realize, like, changing is a tough thing. That saying, old dogs can't learn new tricks, it should be in the Bible somewhere. Because some of y'all are old dogs, and you're having trouble learning some new tricks. Where, where are you today, though? Are you, are you still trying harder to be the best person you can in your own strength? Or have you finally recognized that if you're going to fight these battles, face this opposition, rebuild the rubble, that you need to hide behind God entirely? The shield of faith that he gives you, the helmet of salvation that he bestowed upon you, the righteousness that covers your vital organs, that is all Christ's and not yours. And here's the best part of it all. Once it's all God's, and once the pressure's off of you entirely, I think that is truly the only time we can live for God without fear, without shame, without fear of failure. Because if God won the battle, 
and won the war, it's very easy to fight the battle. If we recognize that it's all because of Jesus and what he's done for us, then we just walk around and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? You already won. What's the worst that could happen to me? I got a shield. They're going to shoot some arrows at me. Bing, bing. Some people are going to fight. I get the sword of not my spirit, but your spirit. Slice, slice. The war is won. Jesus won it, hooked me up, equipped me. I cannot fail. And now we can live more boldly than every religious person in the world today. And once you get that, that you cannot fail because Jesus secured victory for you, once you get that you are loved not because of how good you are, but because of how good God is, once you get that, you will be the most bold, courageous person in the room because nothing can stop somebody that has nothing to lose. And you can't lose anything because it was given to you by the hand of an all-powerful creator. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, Nehemiah. I thank you that you teach us how to wage war. I pray that we wouldn't be foolish in the way we navigate our Christian lives. I pray that we wouldn't run from you. I pray that we wouldn't pretend that we are better than we are. I pray that we would surround ourselves with people who remind us daily to be desperate for your son, Jesus. God, thank you for those in here who are on the mountain. Help them to enjoy the view and prepare and equip them for the next valley. God, I pray for those who are in the valley, who are looking at an impossible mound of rubble. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would carry them along and surround them with people who love them well. Thanks for being my God. Thanks for loving me the way that you do. Thanks for being all that I need and being all that I have. Help us today to live for you. In Christ's name.